Before we get into the text, I kind of want to um, start by giving a recap of the setting and intention of John's letter. Um, we're in the book of 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 5, so if you want to flip there now, that's fine. Um, but I kind of want to just get, give an overall setting here. Um, it's theorized that John likely wrote this letter to a church in Ephesus. Um, scholars aren't completely um, committed to that, but, uh, but many say that Ephesus is the, is the church that he's uh, speaking to. It's, a, it's less of a letter and more of a sermon. He's rephrasing and reiterating, expanding on the same consistent themes. It's, uh, it's not linear, linear or chronological in the way he does it. He hits on the same points throughout, and uh, <clears throat> a lot of it is, um, I think, because he really wants to, to reemphasize the points that he's making, and he's only making three or four, but, but he's, doing it, he's coming at different angles each time, and, and we'll get into that. In this letter, John is confronting recent controversies which had arisen over false teachers who had made heretical claims about Christ. The controversy was believed to be centered around uh, docetism, which essentially taught that Jesus did not exist in the form of a man, but rather appeared as a spirit which, ha- which had the appearance of a man, meaning Christ didn't come as a man. He didn't die as a man. He basically put on a show for us as a spirit and gave the appearance of suffering and the crucifixion while all the, the entire time he was merely a spirit. Um, obviously, Orthodox Christianity has, <laughs> has rebutted that and, uh, and pointed it out to be heresy, um, but at that time, it was, it was taking many, uh, many followers out of the church, and uh, a lot of false teachers were rising up. This is one of the first sort of Gnostic um, teachings that came about. Um, so this is why John mentions in chapter 4 that the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already. These false teachers were considered Antichrist by John. They taught a different Christ, thus proving they were not true sons of God. They did not have saving faith because they did not believe in the Christ who saves. If you have a different Christ, you have a different gospel. And that's what we see in a lot of cults today, a lot of false teachings. You, you get Christ wrong, you get the gospel wrong. As we're nearing the end of the book of John, the common themes which John is emphasizing seems to keep reappearing. I think as Christians, two of the most common issues we encounter is assurance of salvation and discernment of false teaching. How do we know we're saved, and how do we know others are truly sons of God? Or daughters of God, include the ladies. How do we know what is truly solid biblical and orthodox teaching, and how do we know if the teaching is littered with heresies? John is focused on reiterating and restating similar truths related to assurance and discernment. And I think this is this book, especially in, in studying it, has been really helpful for me because I think we run into the issue, especially with social media and exposure to um, many different kinds of teachers, many different ministries. Um, lacking, a lot of church members are lacking in discernment, and we're quick to repost something without actually knowing what this person is teaching. I like this line that he said, but do I actually know that he believes in the same Christ? Um, when I've had Mormons come to my door, we say a lot of the same words, but we, we need to define our terms. And actually, that's, that's what I hope to do in the text today, is to help define what we're saying and not get it wrong. I think it's, it's really important. A lot of times, we, we go to Scripture, and we read it and take it at face value, but I've really, uh, I've really, really enjoyed digging into the Scripture this week and realizing, man, we, if, if we sit and meditate on it, 
and, uh, and, and actually know what we're, what we're learning here, it impacts our doctrine. It impacts what we know about God, and it sort of fills in some of the blank spaces rather than just reading you know, five or six chapters and getting your daily Bible reading in um, for the day. So, so take your time, I guess, is, is what I would encourage there. So two weeks ago, Jeremy examined verses 13 through 15, and last week we heard Chase go through uh, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 5. And in those texts, we learn that we're to have confidence through Christ. We have eternal life, that God hears our prayers, and that we have forgiveness of sins, even though we're not perfected and still may commit sin. John is bolstering the confidence of the believer while also pointing out that there are those who commit sins that will not be forgiven. That's serious. Do not follow these people, he's saying. Make sure you are not one of those. They will never obtain saving faith and will continue in darkness. However, the sinner that does believe, does repent, still may commit sins, but these sins don't ultimately lead to eternal damnation. So we have, we have Christ's atoning sacrifice that's taking the place of those. Uh, he's saying, make sure you're not one of these. However, the sinner that does believe, does repent, I just said that, our sin led to Christ's death, while unbelievers' sins led to their own eternal death. I want to say that again. Our sin led to Christ's death, which was effectual, which, which actually did something for us, while unbelievers' sins lead to their own eternal death. Um, the ramifications are serious. I think Chase did a great job of encouraging us to rejoice that there's sin that doesn't lead to death. That's really, really big. Um, because if all sin led to eternal damnation, then we all know where we would be going. Um, yeah, so in these previous passages and throughout the book of John, um, there's stark contrast being made. And in our text tonight, there are implicit contrasts being made. Tonight I want to deal with passages that basically are the beginning of John's concluding remarks to the end of his letter to the church. Tonight I'll probably repeat myself multiple times, but I'm okay with that because John consistently does that um, through this letter. So I'm just following his lead. Um, Yeah, so let's go ahead and read our passage and then I'll pray. It is 1 John 5, 18 through 19. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for tonight. I thank you that we can go to scripture and learn as a group. I I thank you that uh, we can worship together um, beforehand, and that actually our listening to your word and hearing your word preached is an act of worship as believers. I pray that we would Um, take that seriously, that I would take this um, extremely seriously and that your spirit would work tonight, that we would learn, we would grow, um, we would would grow in our confidence of you and you and in our assurance and in our discernment, God. I thank you for for your word, for Christ's sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. In the year 386, studies in spiritualism, rhetoric, and philosophy were encouraged for those who were intellectually gifted Different religions and Christian sects had been consistently popping up, and all were making truth claims related to who God was and how we're to act in relation to him. During this time, a gifted academic was struggling with the question of evil. Why does it exist? Where did it come from? He learned about and even embraced various philosophies and religions, but none of them helped to answer his question. He then began studying the Christian faith, and realized that evil was not a substance, but rather a perversion from what God had created good. After this realization, he began to recognize that he himself was sinful and evil in many ways. One day while walking, 
through the streets of Milan and wrestling with these thoughts, he heard a child yell from a neighboring house, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. He immediately took it as a sign he must go to scripture and after opening the Bible, he began to read Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. These were the exact sins which this man had struggled with for years. He's quoted as saying, I wanted to read no for- further, nor did I need to, for, instant, or for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. A change had occurred. The truths of Scripture were now clear to him. He believed. He had certainty. He was born of God. This man was Augustine of Hippo, who eventually developed into arguably one of the most influential theologians um, in the history of the Christian church. And without his conversion, caused by God, he would have lacked the assurance to pursue Scripture and, and to know it, and to believe in Christ. So tonight I have four points that I want to get through. I want to examine our confidence in regeneration, our confidence in sanctification, our confidence in Christ's protection, and our confidence that we belong to God, and belonging to God. Verses 18 through 19 help illustrate the confidence and assurance John says should be exhibited by the Christian. He starts each thought off with, we know. Using we know, John is making clear, we can be certain of these truths. We have certainty. We know. He's making a knowledge claim. In verse 18, he's stating that those born of God will not continue in sin. That we are protected and the evil one cannot grasp us. We can have victory because we know this is true. We know. It's something to remember. In verse 19, he again stresses that we know we are of God and all who are not of God are influenced by Satan. We know this. We have that knowledge as Christians. So I want to start with our Christian confidence in regeneration. So the verse 18 starts out, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. What I want to dig into is what it means to be born of God. Um, It's a term that we usually understand to mean someone that's a believer, someone that's of God's family. Um, It's a familial term. So we think about being adopted into God's family. Um, But it's really much more than that, and it actually hints at a doctrine um, that I think is key for us to understand um, in the Christian life. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, it says, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. In chapter 3 of John, Jesus says to Nicodemus the Pharisee that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He then continues to say that one must be born of the Spirit. My last verse related to this, Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is a key word there. It's a doctrine that um, I'm going to explain here, but, but is also extremely biblical and relates to us being born again, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So let me jump into that. These are clear references to the work that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in regeneration. Those who are elect are regenerated. 
Regeneration is a biblical concept that means to give like, life. Mm. The Greek word for regeneration is palingenesia. And I'm sure I didn't say that perfectly, but I don't think uh, I'm going to get in trouble for that. And it means new birth. Author and theologian Michael Horton defines regeneration as the Spirit's sovereign work of raising those who are spiritually dead to life in Christ through the announcement of the gospel. So a change done by the Holy Spirit comes down and changes you. Well, we can highlight the role of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. We must remember that the regenerating work of God is Trinitarian in nature. The Father works in the Son through the Spirit to accomplish salvation. All three persons are at work in our salvation. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says that God will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He will put a new spirit within you. Think about that. He's going to put... He's going to take out your old desires, and he's going to give you completely new ones. That's a miracle that I don't think we as Christians appreciate enough, that the old man is completely dead and gone. And I love hearing the stories and the testimonies of people that can give me that sharp contrast between who they were before they were regenerated and who they are now. I think we need to be doing that more often, to be honest, because it's, it's one of the most encouraging things we can do is to talk about how God regenerated us, how he changed us. The miracle of that new birth, new desire, new spirit is amazing. You're made completely new because of God. That should be exciting. We have a new identity now. That new heart, that new spirit, that means new identity, new you. <clears throat> Now, before, there was nothing you could do to please God before you were regenerated. You were dead in sin. A dead man cannot raise himself from the dead. That's why we need to be regenerated. We're born dead in sin. We actually sing about that. It's a song we sing pretty often here, Psalm 51. Um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That's talking about how we're born with this curse. We, are, we love sin from birth. You can see that if you have any... Um, kids or young siblings, nephews, nieces. They love sin in different ways. Um, Yeah, and Scripture makes clear that without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, no man seeks after God. None does good, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can only have confidence in our regeneration because we know it is all of God. The only reason we have confidence is in our regeneration is because God is the one working. If it were up to you, then you would fail. We, we, we cannot regenerate ourselves. He initiates, he acts, he changes us. We're born of God because he chooses to renew and restore. So being born of God, being born again, or being regenerated are all ways to express how the Holy Spirit sent from the Father and dwells a sinner and gives them a desire to love God and hate the things of the world. Regeneration, therefore, must precede faith. We can't put faith in Christ if we don't have the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be fair, faith would necessarily immediately follow that regenerating work. It's not as if we are born again and then our faith blossoms a year later. It's, it's immediate. The Holy Spirit works, and we're given that faith. <clears throat> In Romans 3, it's made clear that faith is a gift which God gives. But we need the Holy Spirit in order to place faith in Christ. So if I were to simplify the chronology of salvation, 
as we experience it, I believe scripture makes it clear that we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We immediately then place faith in Christ, which as a result, we're justified by faith, we're made righteous in God's eyes. There's no more condemnation. We're then fo- it's then followed by immediate repentance of our sin, which is the first fruit of sanctification. You can't repent without first having faith in the God who is forgiving you of your sin. <clears throat> we're sanctified throughout our life. We die, and we're glorified in heaven, perfected. And to go back to the idea of regeneration, I think some examples like uh, Lazarus, Christ coming and raising Lazarus from the dead. He had nothing to do with himself being raised from the dead. A dead man, as I said earlier, can't raise himself from the dead. Um, and that, that just shows God's work in raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Um, also, we're, we're said to be born of God. Well, a baby has nothing to do with, with its birth. Um, there's other things that happen, but um, the, the baby has nothing to do with it actually being born. They have no control. Um, and honestly, being born is the least impressive thing we do as humans anyway. This is just a side note. But, but if you think about it, like we celebrate birthdays and you did nothing to, to get, like let's celebrate something that's worth, like you graduated or something. Let's celebrate that every year. Um, but think about it. We're, we did nothing and we're rewarded for it there. We're, we did nothing and God is rewarding us. Um, yeah, being spiritually born is just as unimpressive as being physically born. God does it all um, when we're spiritually born. To, re- to reiterate, we have confidence in our regeneration because God is solely responsible for the miraculous work of causing us to be born again. We also have confidence in our regeneration because of the immediate fruit we exhibit. So you know that you're saved because you immediately are given new desires. You don't want to commit the sin you were committing previously. Throughout 1 John, we see what the fruit of new birth is. Those born of God will keep his commands. They'll walk in the way Christ walked. They'll love and not hate. They confess the Son and have him. They do what is right. They don't practice sin. They have the Holy Spirit. They believe Jesus is Messiah. They overcome the world. Believe Jesus is the Son of God. Believe Jesus will protect them. We can all glean, we can glean from all this. We can glean all this from just five chapters in 1 John. He's giving us all the signs of what a Christian is. Those who are born of God have a new heart, new desires, new spirit. This new heart and new desire um, help us to turn from previous sins. This leads us into my next point, which is Christian confidence in our sanctification. So if, we're going to go, if we go back to verse 18, we know that everyone who is born of God, we've talked about what being born of God is, everyone who is born of God will not keep on sinning. What does that look like? Before I get started on a biblical interpretation of this passage, I want to point out some false teachings that have arisen from a wrong interpretation of this passage. Sinless perfectionism um, has become actually relatively common um, currently in modern day, But it's a theological position that you can live without sin. Pelagius, a church leader during the 4th century, who was later rejected by the church, stated it was possible to keep God's law perfectly and that the grace of God 
was not necessary to keep God's law. So you could conjure it up all on your own. He believed you could live a perfect life and that you were capable of this through your own efforts. John Wesley, who started the Methodist movement and, and uh, is a well-respected uh, theologian and church father, also believed that a Christian could attain perfection through grace-perfected love. Basically, pious living could result in eventual perfection in this life. Sinless perfectionism is more common than, than I think most of us are aware, but it's also paired with other false teachings. Usually when you run into a church or a uh, cult, they aren't wrong on just one thing. <laughs> Usually it, it may start with one um, glaring issue, um, wrong biblical interpretation, but it leads to many other things. So um, today there are many churches or... Uh, many people, it's, it's really a different religion, um, that would conclude that Jesus was only a man. And because he was an only, only a man, and he lived a perfect life, we can live a perfect life as well. So Jesus is stripped of his deity, and now he is merely an example for us to follow. So we can live the same way that he did. He's our example. Um, we, we don't see that in Scripture at all. It's clear... Um, John 1.1, 1, 1, um, Christ being de- deity is, is found throughout Scripture. But it, but it really does, when, when you embrace something like sinless perfectionism, and you, you look at this Scripture and you say, those born of God will not keep on sinning. That means, uh, like, you can't have sin. None. You're done. The, the moment you're a son of God, you have no more ability to sin. And you should not be, I, I've heard different, um, uh, uh, different debates where... <laughs> There's actually been accusations that you shouldn't be able to preach the word if you have any sin, and you shouldn't. So, so basically, it disqualifies you from, from many things. And um, we can we can look at the apostles, even with how they interacted with each other. There, uh, Paul's calling out Peter for sin. There's there's sin. We we look at every character in the Bible, and we can see their sin on full display. So if you're going to, uh, the, the argument is lost. I, it really is a, an issue of isolating the text, or um, people call it eisegesis. So you take one single text, you ignore the rest, and you create a doctrine out of that. Whereas a biblical understanding of the, of the word, you would look at the text, and then you would see if there are affirming texts, or if there was text that would help us to understand this better. Um, and that's what you see in a lot of cults with, with false teachings. <clears throat> so when we, when we read, everyone born of God will not keep on sinning, John is making it clear that a necessary prerequisite to overcome any sin is being born of God. Regeneration is necessary, like we were talking about before, in order for us to stop sinning. We must be indwelt with the Holy Spirit in order to desire holiness and abhor sin. So what does John actually mean when he says, those born of God will not keep on sinning? We should always understand that the context surrounding a passage in order to determine what is being stated in Scripture must have a consistent hermeneutic hermeneutic, or a consistent methodical practice of interpretation. Let's read John or 1 John 3, 9 through 10 together. If you want to flip to 3, 9 through 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God makes a practice of sinning. So you are identifying with your sin. Earlier on, he says, um, anyone who says they're without sin, the truth is not in them. 
So he, John is literally refuting the sinless perfectionism um, viewpoint in, in these five chapters. Um, we, we are to find our identity in Christ, meaning we hate sin. We're constantly repenting and turning away from it, but that does not mean we're perfected. Perfection occurs when we're in a glorified state, when we reach heaven. We cannot make a practice of sinning for sanctification occurs through the killing of sin and growing in holiness. Your hate for sin increases and your love for God grows. So there's a dual um, occurrence. You are loving God's law more. You're loving God's holiness. You're pursuing holiness and while also exposing your sin. The Holy Spirit is exposing your sin consistently so that you can fight and kill it. You should be able to look back on your life um, and sometimes the amount of time isn't necessarily important, but you should be able to look back and see the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been struggling with the same consistent sins for years and years and years, we should really examine if we have the Holy Spirit because it says we're going to be sanctified. So when we're sanctified, we no longer identify with our sin and we're increasing in our conformity to God's law. I want to talk about Christian confidence and Christ's protection next. So in verse 18, it says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. First, I'd like to talk about how we know that the he who was born of God in this circumstance is actually Christ. How can we know that this, is true, that this truly is Christ that John is referencing? The switch from the use of the plural everyone to the singular term he shows a distinction between who these people are that are born of God. So if you look at the very beginning, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects them. Protects them. There's a distinction made. The he that we're talking about in the second instance is Christ. And, and many scholars and theologians affirm this one. This is the most commonly um, understood uh, explanation of the text. John makes this grammatical change in order to show the difference between the two sonships that we have. We are sons of God, but Christ is the son of God in a different way. He is the ultimate son of God. Only tri- Christ can truly protect us from the lies and temptations of the evil one. Some say that this protector is a fellow believer. This can't be a fellow believer because a fellow believer does not contain the power in and of himself to protect us from the evil one. It can only be Jesus. In John 17, 12, the CSB version states, states it well when quoting Christ. It says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. He's talking about his spiritual protection of the hearts of the disciples around him. They would not be lost because Christ was protecting them. He was active in protecting them. But it wasn't a physical protection. It was a spiritual. He kept their souls. And the, the, um, when he says, I was protecting them by your name, You've given me a garden, except the son of destruction. Um, The son of destruction is obviously Judas, and that was preordained. God's plan was to use him in order to accomplish Christ's crucifixion, his atoning sacrifice. Christ had the the power to spiritually protect, (coughs) and currently has the power to spiritually protect us. 
That should bring you joy. It should bring you peace. If you were not protected from Satan, you'd have no assurance at all that you'd persevere in the faith to the end of your life. Satan wants to affect your salvific security, but he can't if we're protected by Christ. We have, you have no salvific security if you don't have Christ. Jesus is called born of God because I actually want to go back to that. Um, we were talking about earlier Christ, uh, getting Christ right, understanding who the biblical Christ was. Um, a lot of people believe in a Christ for their salvation, but they aren't protected by him because he doesn't exist. We have to be biblical in our approach and understanding of who Christ is in order to be protected by the Christ that Scripture talks about. Jesus is called born of God because he eternally has carried the title and functioned within the Trinity as son to the Father. Now, this might get a little weird, so I want you guys to focus with me here because I'm going to be talking about the Trinity, and I really want you to get this. Um, Jesus is called born of God because he eternally has carried the title and functioned within the Trinity as son to the Father. This is their relationship, but they remain co-equal at the same time. The persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have eternally existed and related to one another in the same way. They have distinct roles, but have a unified will. Many theologians would say that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father. What that means is that Christ eternally functions as the Son, and that is his role. But that does not, um, that doesn't mean that there was an actual birth of Jesus. It's, it's a role and not a, a, uh, a physical or a, even a spiritual birth. It, my point is, Jesus is uncreated. He's eternal. Therefore, he cannot be born, but he is still son of God. So it is, it's a relational term for the three persons of the Trinity. <clears throat> there are three persons, one being, three in one. We should cement that into our minds. Three persons, one being. Some say, some confessions say one essence. Um, but the point is they're unified in their will and they function distinctly and they have different roles. This is biblical theology that I think can be neglected in the church, but this is our God. We need to know who our God is. We need to know and understand the Trinity. You might not have some, and, and even in the, the simple little explanation I gave, it's not, it's not a deep dive, but we need to have an understanding of what the Trinity is in order to articulate it to others because it is our God. It's our God. It's really important. Jesus is also called a good shepherd who protects and lays down his life for his sheep. So we're talking about who Jesus is as protector, and he's called a good shepherd. In John 10, Christ says he gives his, his sheep eternal life, and no one can snatch them out of his father's hand. The devil has no ability to touch us, no ability to take us out from Christ's protection. Christ is our shepherd, our protector. John 6.39 states, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We can have confidence in Christ's protection because he will not allow us to abandon our faith. He protects our soul. We cannot be lost. He won't lose us because we belong to God. Belonging to God is, is the next point I want to get into. Um, and uh, it's in verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
John makes a clear distinction in this section between those who have put faith in Christ and those of the world. We belong to God. We have a love and desire for God. While the world lives in darkness, consistently embracing the lies of Satan. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul states, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan uses deception, temptation, and other means to lead people into sin. He's the God of this world, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says. He's able to accomplish these things due to the fallen nature of humanity and their rejection of the truth of the gospel. He has power in those areas of life where the truth of God is rejected. So when he says the world, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, he's talking about those who reject the gospel. He's talking about um, sin nature pervading in the world. We, We see it. We all are born into it. That is what Satan is ruler of. he's able to accomplish these things due to the fallen nature, as I just said. He has the power in those areas of life where the truth of God is rejected. This means we have an adversary. We have a wicked opponent. We're fighting someone who's attempting to quench the effects of the gospel, but we aren't alone. And we know how the story ends. We know God gets victory. We're in a fallen world that God plans to restore Just as he has restored restored us through regeneration and sanctification, he's also going to restore the world through the power of the gospel. As believers, we have victory through Christ, who is bringing everything under his feet. I'd like to go to Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. It's a longer passage. If you want to turn there, Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, because I have heard of the faith, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. May give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It's regeneration. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you that you may know that language that John uses, knowledge, we know. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We should rest knowing that God, with supreme authority and power, has put everything under Christ's feet. Christ. Christ is the authority. Christ is putting everything under his feet. The gospel message is not going to be stopped by Satan. And and just because he has control over the worldly areas, that doesn't mean that Christ, through the gospel, isn't going to lay hold of all those areas 
and, and bring a, a people into his fold through the gospel. Though the devil may hold sway over those who are perishing, God still reigns supreme and is using the gospel to defeat Satan. I think as we, we look around in the world, we can see that Christianity is expanding. The gospel is going out. Um, people are being reached more than ever because of technology. And, um, and I love that. I think that if you look at how many Christians we have today in comparison to 100 years ago, it's astronomical. So I think God is using the time and the technology to expand his kingdom, and he's going to keep expanding it. So um, though this text kind of ends on a negative note, I think it's, it's good to remember that those worldly things are for those who are perishing, but God is bringing everything under Christ's feet. So to summarize, because we're born of God, we will be spiritually transformed. We no longer continue in our sin, but instead, with a repentant heart, we turn from sin. And we have assurance that we will persevere in this fight against sin to the end of our life because of Christ's protection. We are from God and not of this world. Through the miracle of regeneration... We can have confidence that we'll be sanctified and protected by Christ because we belong to God. Those are the four points I I wanted to make today. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, do you know that you're saved? Do you desire to kill sin daily? Do you have that desire that's given by the Holy Spirit, that sanctification, um, is it occurring? Do you see the Holy Spirit's work in your life? You should if you're a believer. Think about that. If you are a believer, be encouraged that you're a son or daughter of God, that the Holy Spirit will continue sanctifying your spirit, that Christ protects your soul from Satan's schemes, and that you belong to God. He won't lose you. Let those truths spur you on towards a stronger love for God's word, for God's people, and for those who do not yet believe. We need to go out and expand God's kingdom. And if you've been changed by the Holy Spirit you should want to share that same gospel message with others and let God do the work. He uses the, the gospel preached, the gospel shared. How will they know unless, they haven't, unless they've heard? So we need to take on that responsibility and share with the world. And I'm really encouraged when I hear stories from all you guys where that's actually occurring. I think we have a, a solid group of people that, that really care about this, and um, we should be encouraging others to do the same. I pray that today we can echo the words of St. Augustine when he said, Infused in my heart was something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Augustine knew, and as Christians, we know that we're born of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we were able to hear your word tonight. I pray that you would sanctify us throughout this week, that we'd be able to encourage others um, by sharing what the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. God, you're sovereign, and you're sovereign in our regeneration. Thank you that we can have confidence in that change that we see, that internal taking of the old man and giving us a new heart, taking out that heart of stone, God. Lord, I thank you that in sanctification, we can see the work of the Holy Spirit and we can see the changes, the love for God increasing, the love for your law, delighting in it. God, I pray that we would rest in the protection of Christ to know that he's gonna keep us till the end, God, and we'd be thankful for that. And I just thank you for your supreme authority in all things, God, 
and, and how you're working out all things for our good as Christians. I pray that we would take that truth, know it, believe it, and share it. In Jesus' name, amen.